taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Coming to you from Ronan, Montana, in Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast, and we start off with a word of the Lord. This one comes from Micah chapter 5. Verse 2, which says, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're talking about Calvinism and Molinism, and we'll be back with my guest James White and Bill Craig in just a moment. And by the way, if anyone's looking for a last minute Christmas gift, I can highly recommend Essence of James White, which apparently is the latest, uh, the latest cologne on the, on the market. I just couldn't resist that when I heard the phrase Essence of James White. Would you wear Essence of James White for a lecture if I sent it to you, Bill? If I were rich, I would buy an Essence of James White. It doesn't come from anywhere. Well, there you have it, folks. <laughs> the essence of James White. If you're looking for the last-minute Christmas gift, it appears that uh, <laughs> Justin Brierley was able to put a, a video together on uh, what to buy. And I, I'm just thankful that uh, that they worked together so well on being able to bring that together. <laughs> Oh my goodness! Let's welcome on Brian. It's can't <laughs> barely even hold it together. <laughs> you know, I was driving down the road playing that clip, and I didn't actually see the graphics at the last part of it. That is just <laughs> classic, absolutely classic. Yeah, yeah, they did a good job putting that together. When I saw that, I was like, "Oh, I got to share that with Brian because, oh my word, that is hilarious." Um. Uh, uh, and his face, uh, James White's face, when that uh, when when that first came, when he when he had first announced it, he was like, "What?" It's just basically what. And then he asked William Lane Craig, which was funny. He's like, "Would you buy, uh, or would you would you uh, wear Essence of James White at a at a conference?" And he, and Craig says, "I would buy it if I could afford it." <laughs> And to tell our listeners, if you haven't had a chance to listen to the discussion between William Lane Craig and James White on Unbelievable with Justin Brierley, you need to do this. This is an unbelievable discussion. Now, 
personally, I think William Lane Craig won it down, you know, hands down. Uh, but I think uh, I think it was a great discussion, and uh, it's it's having an amazing impact because I think I heard today that uh, over eight days, it's already in, reached over a hundred and thirty some thousand people in just a week's time. I mean, unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. Um, I, I like the discussion that's going on after it, um, outside of it. It's been really good. Um, you know, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of good uh, feedback, a lot of good uh, discussion going on on YouTube with other channels, kind of, you know, going through and parsing it out and checking it out and stuff. Um, you know, uh, Leighton Flowers did it with his uh, Soteriology 101 and... Uh, Various others um, have done it. I'm I'm kind of expecting Mike Winger and some of them guys to actually maybe put something together. Um, but it's been it's been good so far and pretty fruitful for, as far as what I see. So yeah, I, I agree, and I think that uh, quite, you know quite honestly, I think uh, Flowers has even done some uh, on, online videos with uh, Eric Hernandez and many others. That's been really, like you said, very fruitful discussions, and I think uh, it's it's really been important to have. Yeah, yeah, it's good. I think it's a good discussion we need to be having. Um, just within the church you know it's not a salvific issue but it's something that i think we need definitely we definitely need to be um uh, having this discussion be aware of um, theological issues uh that come about with it so i think it's pretty good so today brian um we're covering our our podcast three in this in this um little kind of mini-series of uh, prophecies um, pointing to Jesus. And so today is Messianic Prophecies in the Minor Prophets. Um, so I think we should just go ahead and get going because uh, this one and the next one are going to be rather uh, rather weighty and pretty heavy. Um, so we'll try to keep as, as fast as we can. We'll keep rolling. And if we have people that have questions or um, need more information, uh, we will have the show notes in the in the podcast um, uh, on the podcast link for the web at the website. So, um, so the questions will be there, and you'll be able to dig through it. Plus, um, a lot of the scripture that's there will be on the website. So, absolutely. So let's go ahead and jump in. Um, who are the minor prophets? I want to kind of get through get through that because uh, you know you hear this. Uh, read the major prophets and the minor prophets it doesn't mean that they're um greater or grander or lesser or lower um it, it's it's a matter of uh the amount of content yeah um, absolutely absolutely and that's exactly right i mean when we talk about minor prophets we're talking about 12 books at the end of the old testament uh, that uh, some of them were pre-exilic, a, a lot of them were post-exilic, and what we're talking about there is whether or not they, they lived before the exile of Israel to Babylon or after. Uh, so guys like uh, Amos and Haggai, they're going to come before, no, so it was Haggai? See, I know Amos came before the exile, and guys like Zechariah and Malachi, uh, they came after. There's even, it's interesting because... Um, it, it seems like some have even suggested that there may have even been a book of the twelve early on, uh, where um, where some of these small prophets 
well, like you said, they're not small in importance, but smaller writings were actually compiled into one big volume of, of 12 minor prophets. And then, of course, they, they, were, they came about into the canon of Scripture. Uh, but these are very, very important prophets uh, thoroughly. I mean, in fact, you find some tremendous messianic prophecies uh, through, through these books and uh, just powerful speakers who are really calling the people to stay faithful to Yahweh and uh, even after the exile to, to come back and rebuild Israel and to establish the glory of Israel that God had set for it. Very, mm-hmm. very amazing prophets here are the minor prophets. Yeah, and even in fact, some of the minor prophets actually have some of the some of the more impactful um, sayings and writings um, that 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 are quoted um, in the New Testament. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. In fact, Zechariah, um, the, the the prophet that Jesus quotes the most would be Isaiah, but second after. Isaiah would be Zechariah. Uh, Jesus quotes Zechariah quite a bit. That's pretty neat. Yeah. So, what messianic prophecies do we find in Hosea? Since we'll start there. Okay, so Hosea in this in this, in the story of Hosea, we see uh, that Hosea is a prophet who is commanded by God to marry a woman who would be unfaithful to him, and her name was Gomer, not Gomer Pyle, but but Gomer. Uh, her name was Gomer. Yeah. Well, it is in your area. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> But Gomer was unfaithful to to uh, Hosea, and Hosea wanted to just get rid of her. He wanted to part ways, but God said, bring her back. Gomer later repents, comes back, and is faithful to him afterward. And what that would be is a symbolic representation of the way Israel was, was behaving toward God and that God was himself, like Hosea, would bring Gomer back, the people back in, and establish a faithful relationship, covenant relationship with them. Now, a Amid all of these details, in Hosea chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, we read, For the Israelites must live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod, and this was the, the, the breastplate uh, worn by the, uh, the priests that would have the, the, the gems of the, of the twelve tribes of Israel, or household idols. Afterward, the people of Israel will return... They will return to the land and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come with all to the Lord and his goodness in the last days. So there is Walter Kaiser's notes. There are five aspects of this prophecy. Um, For God will remember his covenant with Eve, Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David in the last days. This is a phrase that he says is repeatedly to use to point to the eschatological times when Messiah arrives as king over all. And there's five specific aspects of the promise which are made, Kaiser says. And there are five things here. One, the Messiah will return with Israel when Israel returns to the Lord. Um, Two, the Messiah will be a descendant of David, for he is called David their king. And David had already well been passed since then. Three, he will be a great king who will rule over all who fear him. Four, the northern house of Israel that broke away from Judah after the days of Solomon will render allegiance to someone in the line of David, but he will be far greater than David ever was. Now, here again, remember that it was in the northern kingdom. 
ironically, that Jesus came and ministered to the most. And so, you know, Galilee, we're talking about Galilee, Nazareth, this is all part of the northern kingdom. So he also says, and most preeminently, number five, the Messiah is a closely identified with Yahweh, yet at the same time distinguished from him. The Israelites will turn and seek the Lord their God and David their king. So there is a very interesting parallel there uh, that we find in this prophecy as it pertains to Jesus the Messiah. Hmm. Interesting. So does Joel contain any messianic prophecies? Yeah, let me get over there to it. Uh, Joel 2. Uh, there, we're actually going to take a look at two passages of Scripture, uh, both of them in chapter chapter 2. And so let's flip over there. Let me see, Joel 2, 23. And... Um, Uh, let's see here. Let's see what we can find. Joel 2.23 says, it talks about a teacher of righteousness. It says, Children of Zion, rejoice and be glad in the Lord your God, because he gives you the autumn rain for your vindication, okay, or, or for your righteousness. He sends showers for you, both autumn and spring rain as before. Okay, now this may not sound much like it's a, a, a prophecy, but it's actually talking about a future time uh, where blessings would come to the land. And let me flip over here. I had a note here I was going to read uh, concerning this issue. So Joel 2.23 reveals the eschatological teacher of righteousness, the Messiah, who will usher in the messianic reign, bringing rain and prosperity. So this passage indicates that the fulfillment of these words will take place at the end of days when Israel turns to the Messiah. So this is a prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled yet by the Messiah, but eventually will be fulfilled at some point in the future. So he's showing that autumn rains and spring rains as before. Uh, the threshing floors will be full of grain. The vats will overflow with the new wine and fresh oil. This is pointing to a future time of prosperity when Israel turns to the Messiah and they are, they are blessed for their efforts. Now we also see in chapter 2, verse 28... Uh, this is more to a point. Uh, this is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that he talks about in verses uh, 28 through uh, 32. And he says, After this, I will pour out my Spirit on all humanity. Now, let's pause here and remember, in the Old Testament times, the Holy Spirit only came down upon prophets and priests who were ordained, who were anointed, and kings, and sometimes only for a period of time. Even when the Holy Spirit came down upon Samson, if you recall, um, he, it, he, it wasn't the hair that made Samson strong. It was the indwelling Holy Spirit that made him strong. And when he had his hair cut, he broke the covenant so it wasn't anything magical about his hair. He broke the covenant with the Holy Spirit, with God, excuse me, and that's where why he lost his power. So here he says he's going to pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams and your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. I will display wonders, in verse 30 he goes on to say, in the heavens and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
For there will be an escape for those on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, as the Lord promised, among the survivors uh, the Lord calls. So this is talking about a future time where where the Holy Spirit of God is poured out on all flesh, uh, where people have this intimate relationship with God. Jeremiah is going to talk something about this as well. Um, he's going to talk about uh, how God is going to establish a covenant with them in their heart. And ultimately we see that this, that this scripture was fulfilled, not at the end of days, but actually at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit of God came down upon all flesh. Now, some people will say, well, wait a minute, doesn't the language talk about the end times? Well, it does. Uh, theoretically speaking, biblically speaking, we're in the end days, or last days, and we've been in the last days since the time of Messiah because he's established that last and final covenant with humanity, the ultimate covenant, the new covenant, and so that through him we can have that promised relationship with God the Father through the Holy Spirit and the Son, and we have that Spirit outpoured on us uh, as a result of that. Right, and that's where that's where Peter uh, gives the gives the sermon or the the announcement. He says, "But Peter, standing with the with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered." through the prophet Joel, and then that's when he recites that that section Absolutely. of the prophet, pointing to what God was doing at that moment there in uh, at the day of Pentecost as, as the Holy Spirit was being poured out. Powerful stuff. And it's, and it's amazing to see that this, this was... The interpretation that the New Testament that the New Testament writers was something that the early church understood, which ultimately came from Jesus Himself, and I would argue that not only did Jesus have this interpretation, many early Jewish rabbinical scholars had this interpretation as well. But but Jesus saw the total picture of it all, and ultimately saw it in Himself. Whereas many others they were confused on some details, Jesus was able to see the whole picture. That the prescriptures laying out. Could you imagine? Could you imagine be, being being in the in synagogue and you're just reading the scripture, or listening to it, and you're just kind of like, "Yeah, that's about me. Yeah, that's about me. Yeah, oh, and that one too." You know? <laughs> I mean, I just can't help but think that there might have been just a little bit of comedy there, you know? Well, yeah, and you know, I think that obviously, I, I mean, I don't know how much Jesus knew about his identity when he was young. But obviously by the time he's 12, he's in the temple. He already by that time has a growing understanding of who he is and what was going to be done. Because he even talks about being in his father's house. So there's already some type of identification there. Uh, But, you know, ultimately I think that somehow or another there was this sense that he knew all along, but it was actualized through, through his life and, of course, through the study of scriptures. Uh, but that's a fascinating thing to think about, Curtis. How much did he really know when he was growing up? I, I don't know. I, I've kind yeah. of pondered that question myself, wondering, just as you said, was he reading the Scripture and say, oh, yeah, that's about yeah. me? Or how did that come about? I, I don't know. It's interesting to think about. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's something that, 
I mean, you know, we don't know, and I'm not going to go and and write in the history of of Jesus between his, you know, his younger years, you know. But you can't help but but think, you know, this was a this was a a, a toddler, and then grew into a, a young young little boy, and then grew into a young man, and then throughout the time learned trade and learned how to work and do things uh, with his hands and how to communicate with people and, and such. And I mean, he learned no differently than you and I, no differently than any of our listeners, mm. you know, did he stumble and fall, you know, and scratch his knee and, 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 you know, these kind of things, you know, uh, are things that really bring when you're thinking about it and you ponder the real life likeness to Jesus, you know, of, of, He's a real person, and so you can't help but think that he laughed at the things that we laughed at or laugh at, and he, he cried at the things we cried at and, or cry at, and and he he had conversations with people. Uh, you can't help but think about that, you know, conversations with people that you're just in passing, you know, um, asking how family members are, asking how things are, and, you know, did did God, you know— did God plan for that that way to be? Yeah, that's that's for sure how it is. But I just can't help but think that the real humanness, um, that that when we laugh, you know, at at something funny, that our God, you know, has to have that trait of 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 humor, of 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 uh, of joy, and and and. <laughs> I mean, because if we have if we have the ability to sense um, sense humor and sense uh, the need for conversations, the need for uh, um, relationship with people that that our God that was here on Earth didn't need that too. Just a couple comments. Well, three comments I'd like to make here, if I can remember a moment. <laughs> One about the Gospels is interesting because the Gospels are kind of portraits. Um, mm-hmm. kind of like snapshots. If you if you think of even like a movie that, uh, well, for instance, like a television show. I don't know if you've ever watched the show Big Bang Theory, but I, I've often thought about shows like that. That if they were real life, which we know they're not, they would only show like the the the, the most important events that's going on in, in that t- time frame. The same things with historical stories, biographies, and histories that they're they're giving portraits of certain events in that person's life, but they're not telling every detail that happened every single moment. Now, I believe Jesus definitely had a sense of humor. Well, for two reasons. One is more of an objective case, and the other one is more subjective. First, the objective. If you look at the parables of Jesus, there is a great deal of irony and humor built into that. A lot of humor comes from irony, quite honestly. Mm. Uh, you, you know how ironic things are, but you look at the stories of Jesus. There's that irony. There, there, there are puns found in his teachings. Um, that's that's very very punny <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> but but there are but there are cases like for instance, it's interesting to me. I find it humorous that he tells the story of the Good Samaritan to Jewish people who hated the Samaritans. And use the Samaritan as the hero. I mean, that was a classic way of getting a point across, uh, an amazing way. 
And we find that throughout the teachings of Jesus. But another subjective case is, I know God definitely has a sense of humor. I'll give you it for instance. I told the Lord when he called me back in ministry, back in 2007, <laughs> God, I will go anywhere you send me as long as they don't handle snakes. I can't go for that snake handling thing. Would you believe about every church where I've served, they found a snake in the basement or around the perimeter of the church? And I always look up and say, all right, God. <laughs> There's no doubt in my mind that God has a sense of humor. Huh. Uh, that's funny. So just just a quick little – we're going to go off on a rabbit trail here, but, but just for a quick little um, – a little um, cool little thing for our listeners to maybe look at is look up the uh, snake-headed moth. And if you look that up, you'll see this beautiful moth that's, I mean, as big as a book. It's it's a, like as big as an encyclopedia book. I mean, it's huge. This, this moth is huge. And when it's sitting there um, with its wings apart, it, it looks, you know, very colorful and so on and so forth. But when it puts its wings together at, as it's sitting there like on a on a tree branch or whatever, it puts those together and it looks the, – the moth has a defense mechanism in it that scares predators away because when it puts its wings together, it looks like there's two to three snakes there. <laughs> it's the craziest thing ever and i just laugh at that i'm like i'm like yeah that didn't evolve i'm no. just saying that was that was the sense of humor of a of a god saying hey check this out yeah, absolutely <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just funny to me so anyway back to uh back to where we were here so um so number four what does amos tell us about the messiah so Amos's prophecy is is a little more illusory or or maybe even shadowy. I mean you may even see typological. But there is a distinctive promise in this and this is a promise that's going to be more eschatological in nature. So Amos chapter 9 verses 11 through 15. Now notice that at this time there's a divided kingdom the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, when this is written. Excuse me. He says, In that day I will restore the fallen shelter of David. I will repair its gaps, restore its ruins, and rebuild it as the days of old, so that many may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. This is the declaration of the Lord. He will do this. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When the plowman will overtake the reaper, and the one who treads grapes, the sower of seed, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and all the hills will flow with it. So we're seeing a, a, a flourishing of prosperity going on this time. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they will rebuild and occupy ruined cities, plant vineyards and drink their wine, make gardens and eat their produce, I will plant them on their land, and they will never again be uprooted from the land I have given them. The Lord your God has spoken. Now, see, here is one of the reasons why I think that dispensational thought follows a more literal interpretation of Scripture, because this is a distinctive promise 
that the land will be given back to Israel and that there will be some there will be flourishing that happens. And perhaps that's part of the reason for a, a thousand year millennial reign of Christ. I don't know. But the, there is that promise that one day that there will be this flourishing. Now, can this be an allusion to heaven? Well, it could. But uh, but it seems like this is a promise to Israel, the nation of Israel, that their land would flourish during this time. And so ultimately that is going to be another promise that's going to come from Messiah. Um, we see here, uh, let's see, hi, let's see uh, Kaiser says uh, that in... The verb to possess is deliberately chosen for it preserves the prophecy made by Balaam in Numbers 24, 17 through 18. Then it was predicted that a star and scepter would arise in Israel to take possession of Edom. While Israel did valiantly, this one from Jacob would exercise dominion over all he was the Messiah. And he goes on down to say that Amos's prediction is used by James at the Jerusalem Council to stop a squabble between Jewish and Gentile believers about who actually belong to the kingdom of God and who do not. James mentions, Kaiser says, that Peter had just related how God had first visited the Gentiles by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself in Acts 15.14. That that action, James insists, is in precise agreement with what the prophets announced. He then quotes Amos 9 through 11 and its identical concept of the Gentiles who will bear my name. So there is a cohesiveness that happens not only between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. They're brought together as one kingdom, but it also shows that the Gentiles who bear God's name will be brought into this kingdom as well. So there is a promise for land, but there's also a seemingly a promise where Messiah is going to bring people from all over Israel and really all over the world a part of this new as part of this new kingdom. So could that be considered of a, a um, already but not yet type type prophecy? Yes, absolutely, because. In a sense, it's already been fulfilled because there are people who are already part of that kingdom. That kingdom is here now. It's found through the church. It's found through the kingdom of God in the people of God. And uh, that's why there will always be a church in some sense until the return of Christ. Uh, but the not yet part would be more along the lines of the prosperity that comes through Israel, in Israel, and um when Messiah returns again, you know, as we mentioned before, at Christmas time we're celebrating the past advent of Jesus, and we're while anticipating the future advent of Jesus, so we we see that He's brought people together as part of one kingdom, but we also see that future promise of of, of bountiful uh, resources um, in in that millennial reign of Christ to come. Mm-hmm. Right. It. You know, as much as I, 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 uh, hmm, I don't want to really use the word dispensationalism because it, it, it does have a undertone that as soon as you start talking about it, some people just you just lose some people in the conversation. Um, but but I do believe that there's a how, how do you how would you put it a a a part where you see in scripture where God is is revealing things and opening things up and allowing things to be dispensed or allowing things to be uh just like for example for thousands of years we 
we hit things on rocks with other rocks and built things out of you know out of grass you know and and made clay blocks and so on and now we're we're driving battery filled cars and and uh flying to the moon and and you know elon musk is flying around the the world and so on and so forth i mean you you look at there's there's almost like a um a opening or a reopening of of allowing more information or more technology or more things for people to think on and do and um you know einstein nobody thought about the kind of things that he thought of until one day he was just sitting there bonked his head and said oh look at this mm-hmm. you know what i mean it, it's just it, to me it's too much in our face or in our world that i see where we've gone i mean in the past 100 and what 110 years we went from buggy to now we're driving um you know six seven hundred horsepower cars Mm -hmm. you know and trucks i mean it it blows me away as we think about it if you just pause and think let's let's look at how this all kind of come about you know here here's we're making medical advances we're making these kind of advances well how does all this stuff come about it's not like for thousands of years prior to that 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 anybody was sitting there just pondering now how do we cure x disease they mm-hmm. they they were just trying to survive day to day so l- l- let me make two points here um one, I think there is a, pro- a prophecy in Daniel that speaks about how in the end times knowledge will increase. And so I think we're definitely seeing that as time progresses. But on the other hand, you mentioned something about the terminology of dispensationalism. Uh, w- without going into all the nuances, I-, I think we need to point out that there are really two major philosophical, well, theological viewpoints um, when we talk about prophecy. And, and one is uh, dispensationalism. And there, when we say dispensationalism, you're right, there is kind of a negative overtone or, uh, to it, but there really shouldn't be because right. dis- dispensationalism right. simply means well, – let me first of all say this. There's dispensationalism and there's covenantalism. Dispensationalism simply means that God is going to fulfill the, the promises in Israel – at the end time. So no matter who you are, now I know that there have been others, I think Michael Brown has taken a position, Don't he doesn't like to call it dispensationalism. I even heard him in ETS one time say this. But, but here's the thing, when you get down to the terminology, dispensationalism believes that there is still a future place for the nation of Israel in the end time working of God. So if you hold that in any stretch of, of the imagination, then you're in that dispensational camp. But if you believe that the church has replaced Israel and there's no more promises given to the nation of Israel and God's just finished with the nation of Israel, then you you are under that covenantal paradigm. Now, yeah, there are some nuances to both sides, which we just really don't have time to go into tonight. Nope, nope. But, but just to clarify the two terms, Dispensationalists, if you if you believe that God is going to do something through the nation of Israel, that He's not given up on them, that He's going to do something through the nation of Israel, then you're a dispensationalist. There are several different branches of that. But if you believe that God is finished with the nation of Israel 
and has, has, has moved completely to the church and is not going to have any anything else to do with the nation of Israel, then you're more in the covenantalist camp. So the question is, do these promises point to a, a future use of... Uh, uh, let me rephrase that. Do some of these promises point to a future eschatological moving through the nation of Israel? If you say yes, then you're dispensationalist. If you say no, then you're covenantalist. If I hope that makes sense. There's a lot there to unpack. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, and I, and that's kind of why I wanted to kind of bring that up to kind of flesh that out a little bit because I, um, yeah. Now, now, and that's it's and I'm clear glad to you, me in scripture. It, I, it really is. I'm glad you did because. This is this is where when we talk about prophecies, not only messianically but eschatologically, this is where the major differences between those two camps come in. If if you if you obviously when we read these promises, they really seem to be literal promises being given to Israel, and if we still hold that to be true, then then some form of dispensationalism has to be held. But if we just say, simply say the church has replaced this, he's just talking about the spiritual people of God, then then the covenantalist or the replacement theology, as some people call it, uh, that's more in line with that type yeah. of thinking. That makes sense. So are there messianic prophecies in Micah? Yes, we see two. Uh, one in chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. And he says, I will indeed gather all of you, Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen. Here again, we see similar terminology in Micah that we did in the book of Amos. Um, Like a flock in the middle of its pasture, it will be noisy with people. So we see an overflow of people, people being brought into the camp of God. One who breaks open the way will advance before them. They will break out, pass through the city gate, and leave by it. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord as their leader. Now, interestingly, we see in the very end of that, their king will pass through them, and they can. he connects that with the Lord. That's all caps, the Yahweh as their leader. So just like in previous prophecies where we read, this this king is identified with Yahweh, but there's a little separation between the person Yahweh and this kingly ruler. And again, that really fits the, the Christian interpretation of Jesus being God come in flesh, but that whole Trinitarian viewpoint of Christ, um, or even the bipartite notion in the earliest church, where Christ is identified as being with God, God's Son, but separate from Yahweh in that sense. So there are two, but they're connected. They're part of the same entity. And uh, just to point it out, when Jesus was talking about um, him being the good shepherd uh, and talking about the sheepfold and talking about how he's the one that... uh, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, at the I, did, I didn't make that connection. <laughs> I didn't make that connection. That is a very good parallel. That's a very good point. And he's probably, what he's probably doing is alluding to this passage of scripture yep. as he yep. does that. Yep. That's a very good point. Yep. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's just some big <laughs> stuff when you start kind of 
letting letting the scripture speak, remembering the stories as you've read through the scriptures, and then recovering it, and then and then listening and watching for these things. Um, what about as as he's coming through, um, coming through on the donkey, coming into yep. into Jerusalem, and, and he's riding through the midst of them. He's the king, coming through them, absolutely. People. And and there's going to be some things in Zechariah here in a few moments that's going to be pointing to that too. Mm-hmm. But absolutely, their mm-hmm. king will pass through before them. The Lord is their leader. And, you know, it seems to me that some other people in the town of Jerusalem must have known that because they were shouting Hosanna. Why would they say that if they didn't know, make some type of connection um, to this verse mm. or to the Messianic mm. prophecies in general? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Big stuff. So what's the B there, Micah 5? Oh, yeah, Micah 5 too. Let's, let's flip over there to it. And this is actually the passage of scripture we read at the outset of the outset of the podcast. Uh, this is showing the Bethlehem will be the birthplace of Messiah. And I'll go ahead and read it real quickly. Once again, Bethlehem Ephrathah, uh, you are small among the clans of Judah. This is a small community. One will come from you to be the ruler over Israel for me. Now, do you see the as we're reading through all of these passages? You just, do you start to see the puzzle being pieced together? Mm-hmm. There yeah. individual yeah. pieces being placed together, and you start seeing a portrait at the end of it. Um, his origin is from antiquity. Now, let's pause there a minute. Do you remember the prophecy we read last week where it talked about um, he would be in the order of Melchizedek? I think it was Psalm 110, if memory serves. Well, this makes the same allusion. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. There's a little bit of a mystery to him. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of the ruler's brothers will return to the people of Israel. Um, Man, there's a lot to discuss there. But what he's essentially saying is he's talking about the coming of uh, the ruler and... um, we would see here, uh, gosh, there's several things to discuss. We find three important points that Kaiser points out here. If I can find the first one, Micah's prophecy of the Messiah affirms at least three things about him. Kaiser says, one, he will be an ancient ruler, even though he arrives on the scene in times that are closer to our own time than Abraham's day. Secondly, this ruler will be a unique person, for he will come forth for me, he says. And then thirdly, his birth and coming will signal a new day for God's people in Micah chapter 5, verse 4, a new covenant, a new relationship, a new establishment in God's kingdom or his dealings with people. Yeah, so we got to hurry through this. Oh my goodness, we're barely even. Yeah, <laughs> So, what does Haggai say about the Messiah? All righty. So Haggai, uh, let's let's flip and see what he says here. Um, I'm trying to get all my resources here together. <laughs> There's just so much here. Uh, I think this is in the. Uh, hold on a second. Let me flip over here to it. Give me just a second. Uh, okay. All right. So Haggai chapter 2, verse 
6 through 9, and then we'll read verses 21 through 23. For the Lord of armies says this, Once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and dry land. I will shake all the nations, so the treasures of all the nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. The silver and gold belong to me. This is a declaration of the Lord of armies. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first. Did you catch that now? The final glory of this temple will be greater than the first, says the Lord of armies. I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Okay, so um, that's the first part. Now, let's go in verses 21 through 23 of the same chapter, uh, 21 through 23. Uh, the word of the Lord, this is chapter 20, said, I mean, verse, tw- verse 20, I'm sorry. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of Gentile kingdoms. I will overturn chariots and their riders. Horses and their riders will fall, each by their brother's sword. On that day, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant. This is the Lord's declaration, and make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. So let's first of all look at um, the Messiah, first of all, is shown to be uh, the desire of the nations. Um, we see that there are three immovable things here. There's an immovable kingdom in verse 6, an immovable king in verse 7, and an immovable glory in verses 8 and 9. God's going to shake things up. And remember, whenever um, the glory of the Lord came through, he came through, I believe it's the eastern gate, filled the temple. By the way, that gate's been sealed by conquerors now. Right. Somehow or another, God's going to reopen that thing back up. The glory is going to refill the place, and um, and this is a I, I don't I don't think that's going to be that hard. The 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 dude created the whole earth out of nothing. <laughs> exactly. <No. laughs> Spoken word. It can it can come about. <laughs> but, but but he's he's talking about Zerubbabel here. Finally, you know, later on, and this is an indication. Uh, while there may be a a. Uh, uh, there may be some immediate prophecy going on there. Ultimately, he's talking about uh, the future as God will overturn royal thrones, God will vanquish yep. all warring rivals, and the nature of God's victory will come from uh, like Gideon's victory in Judges 7-2, but in this case, it would come through the Messiah in the end. Yeah. Yeah, so um, into Zechariah, Oh boy, <laughs> we we got a lot in this one. Um, it contains a lot of messianic prophecies. Um, what does the what does the prophet tell us about the Messiah? Shoo, all right, hold on a second. Let's 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 back this thing up here. All right, so let's go to first of all Zechariah. Uh, so Zechariah, let me pull this up. Zechariah chapter three. Uh, hmm. Pr- Zechariah is long to type there. Okay, so we, we're going to see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven things here in Zechariah. First of all, Zechariah 3, 1 through 10, the, the Messiah will be the restorer of Israel. And he showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord. All right, now hold on a second. Let's pause here. Mm-hmm. Jesus' name in Hebrew and Aramaic is Yeshua in Aramaic. In Hebrew, it's Yehoshua. Hmm. Yehoshua means Joshua. 
Yeshua is the same thing. It's just a de- derivation of Yehoshua, which means Joshua. Right. Right. Jesus, Yehoshua, Yeshua, they all mean the same thing. Jesus in Greek, they all mean the same thing. Ultimately, it means God is salvation or God saves. More literally, Yahweh is salvation, Yahweh saves. Yahweh is salvation. Okay. Right. So he showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord with Satan standing in his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? And Joshua was dressed with filthy clothes as he stood before the angels. And the angel of the Lord uh, spoke to those standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to him, See, I have removed your iniquity from you. I will clothe you with festive robes. And then we go on and so we see that the angel in verse 6 charged the Joshua, This is what the Lord of armies says. If you walk in my ways and keep my mandates, you will both rule my house and take care of my courts. Listen, high mm-hmm. priest Joshua in verse 8, You and your colleagues sitting before you, indeed this man... Uh, are a sign that I'm about to bring my servant, the branch. This is as clear a messianic title as there is in the Old Testament, as as the servant of the Lord, the branch of the Lord, is talking mm-hmm. about the Messiah. So in this passage of Scripture, I don't think that he's talking about the sins of Joshua, even though some people believe that. Even if that's the case, I think what you see is this high priest has borne the iniquity of the sins of the people, the filthy robes were taken off, and essentially I think what you see here is the atonement of people through a priestly interaction. And it's interesting that this high priest's name is Joshua or Yeshua, the same name of Jesus, and this individual is connected with this branch of the Lord in verse 8, And notice he says also, the stone that I have set before Joshua on that one stone are seven eyes. Seven meaning perfection, eyes meaning wisdom. I will engrave the inscription on it. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. And I will take away the iniquity of this land in a single day. (laughs) In a single day. In a single day. Mm Mm-hmm. And on that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. This is the declaration of the Lord of Armies. This is talking about an atonement that comes through a priest king who is the branch of the Lord, who bears the sins and iniquities of the people in one day, atoning their sins. Right. That sounds very familiar. (laughs) Branch of Jesse. (laughs) Yeah. So... And, and then what what does he say about the the royal priesthood? Okay, so this is in chapter six, verses nine through fifteen. It says the word of the Lord came to me: take an offering from the exiles from Heldai, Tobijai, uh, Jedidiah, or Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go that same day to the house of Josiah, son of Jeph. Uh, there's a lot of hard words. Zephaniah, take silver and gold. <laughs> Make a crown and place it on the head of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. You are to tell him, this is what the Lord of armies says. Here is a man whose name is Branch, and he will branch out from his place and build the Lord's temple. Yes, he will build the Lord's temple, 
He will bear royal splendor and will sit on the throne and rule. There will be a priest on his throne, and there will be a peaceful council between the two of them. The crown will reside in the Lord's temple as a memorial to... Um, Let's see here. We're going down to verse 15. Okay. To Hildai, Tobijai, Jedai, Jediah, and Hen, son of Zephaniah, people who are far off will come and build the Lord's temple, and you will know that the Lord of armies has sent me to you. This will happen when you fully obey your, the Lord your God. So here again, we see that uh, this, this branch identified with the name Joshua, which is... Uh, even though there was a, a a priest in that day, this is pointing to a future servant, a future branch who was Messiah, who would be a priest king, atone the sins of the people. And here we see that this there will be another temple built. Now here again, if you hold to the dispensational view that this is a literal view, that this is a literal prophecy, there will be another temple built. Uh, in Israel. And then notice it says in verse 15, people who are far off will come and build the Lord's temple and you will know that the Lord of armies has sent me to you. So there is, as you said before, and this is what Jesus preaches, an already not yet kingdom. Some of these promises have already been fulfilled. Some of them are yet to come. Hmm. Yeah. It, it, the, the, uh, the royal priesthood, I could go on for quite a little bit about that but we got we got more to go on to so <laughs> and this may be something we need to pick back up later on because i think we could do a very lengthy series with just each of these books take you know really going back and plowing through some more of these prophecies later on zechariah is just chocked full of very important prophecies i've done a lot of research on this book and i am the more i study this book the more i'm impressed by it mm-hmm Mm-hmm. It's got a lot of it's got a lot in it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the royal entrance of Messiah. So here again, remember the the portrait that's being painted as the puzzle is being placed together. Remember, we read earlier in one of the prophecies that it talked about the king would come in the midst of the people. This passage of Scripture is directly connected with the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem when he's riding on the, the, the foal, uh, riding on the donkey, going through the, the gate of is, to, into Israel, into the, into the temple, excuse me, right. or into Israel, or Jerusalem, yep. I'm sorry, into Jerusalem. Um, the people are saying Hosanna, but notice they're connecting it back to this passage of Scripture. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion, daughter of Zion. shout and triumph. Daughter Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious. Uh, victorious can also mean there has salvation. Uh, humble or and, and has salvation. Humble, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the house and the horse, excuse me, from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed. And he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. Where do we start? Oh my gosh. So he's going to ride in victorious, bringing salvation, humble, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And we see ultimately, right. here again, already not yet, 
The bow of war will be removed when he returns again. He will proclaim peace to all nations. That's what his that's what his message already was, and his dominion will extend to the uttermost parts of the earth, even far beyond the boundaries of Israel. Yeah. Boy. <laughs> uh, Hosanna. Amen. Huh. All right. So the rejected shepherd. So here again, looking at the picture where we see we see painted before us. Now you already see the, the indication of this this priest king coming, but now look what happens. The Lord my God says this shepherd the flock intended for slaughter. Those who by him slaughter uh, that by them slaughter them, but are not punished. Those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, because I become rich. Even their own shepherds have no compassion for them. Indeed, I will no longer have compassion on the inhabitants of this land. This is the Lord's declaration. Instead, I will turn everyone over to his neighbor and his king. They will devastate the land, and I will not rescue it from their hand. So I shepherded the flock intended for slaughter, the oppressed of the flock. I took two staffs, calling one favor and the other union, and I shepherded the flock. In this one month, I got rid of three shepherds. I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. Then I said, I will no longer shepherd you. Let what is dying die, and let what is perishing perish, and let the rest devour each other's flesh. Next I took my staff, called favor, and cut it in two, annulling the covenant I had made with all the peoples. I was It was annulled on that day, and so the oppressed of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, If it seems right to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. So they weighed my wages, thirty pieces of silver, which, by the way, is the price given mm-hmm. to a slave. Throw it to the potter, the Lord said. Um, the Lord said to me, This magnificent price I was valued by them. So I took the thirty pieces of silver and threw it into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I cut it in, in two, my second staff, union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Now, two things are going on here. One, Zechariah, the actual prophet, was rejected, and people chose false prophets over a genuine prophet. Right. Oh, boy, can we run with that one. Uh, Does that not still happen today? (laughs) Every day. Every day it seems to happen. You preach truth. Yeah, you know, you you might be rejected, you know, but, uh, uh, but, but, but anyhow, this is actually looking forward forward in history to the time that the branch of the Lord would come and and the people would turn against him and 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 the individuals would uh, would basically cut them off sell them off for 30 pieces of silver that sounds familiar mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, wasn't it someone yeah. else who sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver I think it was yeah and and then and then through the 30 pieces of silver back at the house of the Lord, and the priest bought a potter's field. <laughs> yeah. Just saying. Dang. Can't talk, it be about, talk about a whole bunch that has to come together. If Let's just say this. If that prophecy right there, think about all that had to stack up on top of that. If that prophecy right there was fulfilled, hands down, we win. I mean, just... Yeah. 
Well, and even Seriously. if you go back in the story, Jesus knew there was a particular person who would let them borrow this donkey to allow him to ride into Israel, or in, I keep saying Israel, ride into Jerusalem. And so they did as Jesus asked, and, and it happened as, as he told them it would. Um, he evoked a little middle knowledge there, knowing what the person would do in that certain circumstance, but will not go down that route. But nonetheless, still right. yet... You find this coming, as you mentioned, you know, associating it with the potter's field. There's so much precision in this prophecy that it's more than just coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. Ay, ay, ay. I mean, and then you just get into this next prophecy of the pierced Messiah. Forget about it. It's all over with. Well, yeah, I mean, and this is getting more into the Easter, and maybe, and maybe we can take one of our, pro, you know, one of our podcasts in spring with Easter time, and just focus on Zechariah because I think this deserves a lot of attention here. Uh, so, so twelve ten is where we are with this one, and we're just building a case right now. So, notice he mm-hmm. says, "Then I will pour out pour out my spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look at me whom they pierced." And they will look at me whom they pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning of Hadal Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. Um, so, um, so he goes on to say the land will mourn. talks about the land of mourning. And then um, in verse chapter 13, verse 1, On that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the residents of Jerusalem to wash away sin and impurity. So here again, there's this connection. Um, he also talks about in verse 2, there's interesting, he's going to remove the names of the idols from the land and they will be no longer remembered. And uh, it talks about cleansing the un- unclean spirits and there's a lot here a lot more than what we have time to discuss but the, the main thing is that they would look on the one whom they pierced and this is even connecting back to that rejected shepherd right mm. yeah so much there <laughs> so yeah and then you think about it they'll they'll even there's a prophecy that talks about um, they will look on him and they will ask him, "Where'd you get those scars?" Yeah, and he will say, "I got those these scars in in the house of my friends." Yeah, I'm not sure where that even is. Oof, I remember. Yeah. Good night. Yeah, yeah. So the shepherd king struck. So, so here, here we see verses seven through nine of chapter thirteen. In Zechariah. Again, Zechariah, we could, and again, we may want to do this come in spring. We may just want to look at Zechariah and go through some of these prophecies and, and really the book. It said, uh, Sword awake from against my shepherd, against the man who is my associate. This is the declaration of the Lord of, of armies, or the Lord of hosts, as some translations put it. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Okay, now let's stop here. The, the shepherd was struck and the sheep scattered. This is what you find with even the apostles when Jesus was crucified. They scattered. They ran. Um, 
In the whole land, this is the Lord's declaration, two-thirds will be cut off and die, and a third will be left in it. I will put this third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is, is tested. Uh, they will call upon my name, and I will answer them. And I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is our God. And so here again, this points to, this is more of an Easter theme, more of what we'll be talking about in the spring, but still, uh, it's important right. to mention that now. And then, and then uh, the return of Messiah. Oh boy, it gets good. It gets good here. And so, look, and, at <laughs> and just and just for and just for clarification, how how far timeline wise was the book of Zechariah written before Jesus was on the earth? We know that Malachi was written four hundred years before Jesus was on the earth, but how far? Back with Zechariah. Let's see here. I was trying to see if I could find a time here. Uh, Zechariah began his prophetic ministry November 520 B.C., uh, two months after Haggai delivered his first message on August 29th, 520. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it amazing that we can pinpoint the dates just by using the months and, and time frames they give us? But November of 520... So that would have been uh, a, what five? I'll just say, just say, years. yeah, just like five hundred years or so before the time of Christ, uh, because yeah. um, he was probably well, it'd be less than five hundred years, but because he, he was probably most likely born five B, uh, yep. four or five BC, uh, Jesus was, right. but even still, just yeah, round it, it off and say five hundred. Yeah, it just goes to show you that you can't make this stuff up. No, and and not only <laughs> not only this the. The whole picture throughout this entire series, just looking at the entire picture, and we haven't even given some of the prophecies talking about resurrection. We'll talk about yeah. that come up at Easter time. But just look, this whole, again, think of it like a puzzle. All of these pieces yeah. being placed together, it, it paints an amazing, amazing portrait. Yeah. So, so real yeah. quickly... He talks about the Lord. The day belong to the Lord is coming when the plunder will be taken from you. He talks about the 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 evil that happened in the land, and then he talks about in verse three, the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on the day of battle. Uh, I tell you what, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I I, I would stop at verse uh, verse five, and we'll come back to this later on. The Lord will go out and fight a battle against those nations as he fights on the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces yep. Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives. Now, let's stop here for a moment. What mountain was it that Jesus ascended from? The Mount of Olives. And he's going to come back on that Mount of Olives just as he left. The Mount of Olives this time will be split in half from east to west, forming a huge valley so that half the mountain will move to the north and half to the south. You will flee by my mountain valley. Excuse me, for the valley of the mountains will extend to Azal. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. All the holy ones coming with him. Yeah. This is an amazing portrait. Yeah, it. <laughs> we could get into so much with this. I mean, go into Revelation and John and all them writings there, and it 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 just amazes me how how things come back to 
that portion of the of the world how how many times there are specific portions and specific uh prophecies uh delegated to to that section of the world pretty crazy and it is and and you know for whatever reason um God chose this area. Well, and I think there's good. Let, let me stop and say I think there may be good reasons for the why he did, because up until the 1400s or so, 13 1400s around that time period, um, the majority of human population was found in Europe, Asia, and Africa. And if you look at Israel, Israel is at the center, uh, the center of of the union between these three continents. It's, it's, it's right there in the middle. You know, the whole Middle East region is right there in the middle, connecting Europe to Asia to Africa. So it's really at the centerpiece of of, of humanity in many ways. And so I don't know if that's one of the reasons or not, but uh, it does seem that he chose this uh, this area for a particular purpose. Mm-hmm. And, and let's let's go ahead and close out with uh, with uh, one last one, and that's Malachi. That's the last book, and it's interesting. It ends like this because it's actually it, it unites very well with the gospel presentation because. He says, it talks about even a forerunner coming. Malachi 3, 1, See, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. And then you go over into chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. For look, a day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches, but for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness. Okay, so first of all, in chapter 3, verse 1, it's talking about the forerunner coming. Son of Righteousness, that's a messianic title. The Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from a stall. You will trample the wicked, and they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I'm preparing says the Lord of Armies. And there's a lot more we could go into there. It talks about, uh, the, the, the remember the, the instruction of Moses, the ser- my servant. Uh, he says, look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And, uh, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers. And he will come and, and, and he will deliver these promises. So a lot there in Malachi even you know to discuss. But it's interesting seeing how the Old Testament ends as it really truly connects with uh, the New Testament Gospels. Yeah. It, there's just so much, though. But <laughs> it, 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 we, we got to end here. But, but I want to I end with this, with this parting thought. There was 400 years be, between Malachi and, and the New Testament. Jesus, well, it's still the Old Testament when Jesus comes. My point being, there was a lot of people wondering what was just said. There was a lot of people wondering, holding on to a hope and an anticipation of something that God was going to do. It's no different than us holding on to what God is going to do next with us. 
holding on in anticipation. I just want to give hope and and a bit of a bit of encouragement as we hold on to things that things that look like they're like Peter said in 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 his in his epistle where he talks about there's going to be scoffers that are going to come mockers that are coming that'll say look hasn't hasn't these haven't these things just continued uh, on and, and and been the same from from our fathers and forefathers and so on and it just continues on the same and i i want to say that to people to remind people that the reason god gave us his word was to give us hope and encouragement to know that there was a past that there were people just like us humans that looked to these words and had these words in our uh, in in their minds and in their hearts and in their teachings but they didn't see it right then and there it, it was a promise that was given but they didn't quite have the promise yet it, it's no different than us today we have more assured promises like it says in the scriptures we have more assured promises than those prophets that spoke those spoke these prophecies therefore hold on and hold fast to the hope that we have the stuff that we know the things that we know that are true and real hold on to those don't let go and i just want to end there so be here bellator christy want to thank you for spending time together with us and we value that time our prayers that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and as a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast. And until next time, Brian and I say, Soldier on, friends. friends. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christi Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christi Podcast and BellatorChristi.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Hi, I'm Dave Baggett. I'm the director of the Center for the Foundations of Ethics, previously called the Center for Moral Apologetics, at Houston Baptist University, which in this fraught cultural moment of eroding moral foundations exists to explore the ultimate questions about ethics. What explains intrinsic human value, for example, or what accounts for authoritative moral obligations or essential human equality or basic human rights? We aim to foster a community of scholars from an array of disciplines to delve into these questions with care and rigor. In the process, we hope to highlight the evidential significance of bedrock and axiomatic moral truths when it comes to matters of the human condition and ultimate reality. In June of 2022, 
we will be kicking off our certificate program in moral apologetics, a four-course sequence on the history of the moral argument, a course defending moral realism, a course defining and defending theistic ethics, and a course that reveals the shortcomings of secular ethical theories. So check it out on the HBU website and at our own website, moralapologetics.com. Do you have a question about the Bible, theology, or apologetics that you've always wanted to ask but never felt comfortable asking? If so, we want to encourage you to head over to bellatorchristi.com and submit your question on the Submit a Question link. Your question will be reviewed and may be featured on a future article or podcast. Remember, the only dumb question is the one unasked. So go over to bellatorchristi.com now and submit your question. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith, but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today. <laughs>